This sermon was preached by Harry Fujiwara, Associate Pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. August of 1961, construction began on a wall that would completely cut off West Berlin from the surrounding territory of East Germany. The wall was 87 miles in length, separating the western part of Berlin, which was under the control of the U.S., France, and Britain, from the eastern part, which was occupied, administered, and influenced by the communist Soviet Union. The wall was topped with smooth pipe, making it more difficult to scale, and it was reinforced with barbed wire, mesh fencing, guard dogs, and watchtowers. June 12, 1987, Ronald Reagan made a famous speech at the Brandenburg Gate, challenging Mikhail Gorbachev to remove the wall as a sign of increasing freedom in the communist bloc of Eastern Europe. About 11 minutes into the speech, he utters the famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. About two years later, the tearing down of the Berlin Wall commenced paving the way for German reunification. Those of you who have been here for a while know that I've been working through the book of Ephesians every time I've had the privilege to preach from this pulpit. Back in October, we started with the first half of chapter 1, and today we find ourselves in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. So please turn there with me as I read verses 11 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that your word is truth, and we ask that you would sanctify us by thy truth. Lord, we pray right now that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive your word, Lord, because we know that your word is powerful to change our lives through the gospel. And so, Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name, that he might be glorified, that he might receive the preeminence. Amen. 
Remember the context of the verses that precede this, right? The famous first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul talks about the gospel at work in individual lives in those verses. He starts with who we were, dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. That's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Paul's hammering home the gospel from every angle. Then, In this latter half of chapter 2, Paul spends 12 verses now discussing specifically how a right understanding of the gospel should inform life within the church. That is, how does understanding that we were once dead in trespasses and sins, but now we are made alive in Christ by grace alone, how does that manifest itself in how we as believers live our lives out in the church? Another way to think about this is how in light of what happens to individuals as they're saved by the gospel, as Paul describes in the first 10 verses, is the collection of those individuals, that's us, the church, how is the church then supposed to function? And so the main thing that Paul is trying to accomplish here is he is trying to give a doctrinal justification for unity within the church body. Paul is trying to give a doctrinal justification for unity within the church body. And this is where it's important for us as students of the word to know the background, right? to know the audience to whom this letter was originally written. Paul is writing this primarily to the first century Ephesian church. Now, if you need a parallel in your mind, think of first century Ephesus being like 21st century New York, financial center. It's a melting pot of cultures. There's many pagan influences. And it's amidst this backdrop that the church at Ephesus existed. Now, we often think back to the early church, for example, the church at Ephesus, and we think, wow, the believers, they were really strong, and the church was really strong back then, and we say, wow, everybody, they were together, they had all things in common, they overcame persecution, they were tested in their faith. And I agree with you that the early church was a great thing to see these believers coming together in spite of all the persecution they were facing, but at the same time, not everything was perfect. The early church had a lot of major problems. That's why we have all of these New Testament epistles. Most of them are addressing the problems in the early church. Sin, false doctrine, false teachers, heresies. The early church had a lot of issues. And one of the biggest problems that the early church had was a culture of division. Division among many lines. But I mentioned earlier, Ephesus was like a melting pot of cultures. Well, just because you have a melting pot doesn't mean everybody gets along. Society back then was extremely divided. And I think at the root of any division is our sinful nature. We like to exclude other people. We like to feel superior to other people. We lift ourselves up while putting others down and not associating with them. And that's exactly what was going on in the city and the society of Ephesus at that time. Division at its core is a sin issue. But it wasn't just the pagan society of Ephesus in which division was found. The church suffered from a lot of the same division that society in general suffered from. In the church, you had worshiping one God in one place, all different types of people. And so there was division in the church at Ephesus among many lines. But you have slaves and free, men and women, Greeks and non-Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. Let's take a look at these specifically. Slaves and free. Freedmen considered slaves to be below them. After all, that's exactly what society and the economy is telling them. 
Slaves, on the other hand, resent their masters, most of whom treated them harshly. How could slaves and free in the same congregation get along? How could a master view his own slave as his spiritual equal and his brother in Christ? How about men and women? Well, women were viewed as being far inferior, and many husbands really did not treat their wives very well. The command by Paul in Ephesians 5, later in this letter, for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, we see that command and we think, wow, that is a lofty task. Imagine how much more so it was in a society in which wives and women were considered second-class citizens. How could that division reconcile itself in the church? How about Greeks and non-Greeks? The Greeks pretty much considered themselves to be superior in culture and intellect in all things. As a matter of fact, they would refer to everybody who was not a Greek as a barbarian. Right? The etymology of that word barbarian is interesting. It comes from Greeks mocking other people's languages. They just sound like gibberish. Bar, bar, bar. It's like, it's like the parents in Charlie Brown. Just sounds like gibberish. And so from there they got the word barbaros, which in English is barbarian. So the very definition of someone who was not Greek was a way to put them down. The Greeks felt that they were culturally much superior to all other people. But of all of these divisions, the one in the church that was most problematic, more problematic than Greek and barbarian, more problematic than man and woman, more problematic than slave and free, was Jew and Gentile. And by Gentile, of course, I'm referring to anybody who is not a Jew. Many Gentiles in the early church just could not wrap their minds around the fact that they would be worshipping with Gentiles. After all, the Old Testament was for the Jews. right? The Messiah was for the Jews. God's promises were for the Jews. God's covenants were for the Jews. His provisions were for the Jews. So the Jews are puzzled as to how am I supposed to accept these non-Jews into the congregation, worship alongside of them. Consider them as brothers and sisters. And so that's the main practical issue that Paul addresses here. At stake is the unity of the entire church because if Jews and Gentiles can't be united, then the body as a whole has no hope for unity. It would divide among not only that line, but also all these other lines that I mentioned earlier. And so Paul really wants to address the issue of unity between Jews and Gentiles on a practical level. But Paul being typical Paul here, addresses the practical concern or issue that has to be addressed, but doesn't miss a chance to throw in some systematic theology that lays the foundation for and justifies the practical teaching. So yes, be united Jews and Gentiles, but theologically, here's why you need to be united. And so we're going to look at today's text from the vantage point of a three-point outline. Reconciliation needed, reconciliation accomplished, and reconciliation Applied. So first Paul lays out the need for reconciliation. Reconciliation is needed by pointing out how the Gentiles were alienated on two fronts. First of all, they were alienated from the Jews. That is a social alienation. And more importantly, they were alienated from God. It's a spiritual alienation. Verses 11 and 12 illustrate them both. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. First, let's look at how they were alienated by the Jews, the social alienation. 
The Jews would call those who were not Jews, again, that's Gentiles, they would call them the uncircumcision. But to be called uncircumcised was not just a description of physical anatomy. It's not like calling someone a blonde or a big guy. Those are physical descriptions. Calling the Gentiles the uncircumcision was a derogatory term. Circumcision, of course, was the sign of the Old Covenant commanded in Genesis 17. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if you were a part of the Old Covenant, that is, if you were a Jew, you had to be circumcised. And any male who was not circumcised was not part of this covenant. So when the Jews would call somebody uncircumcised, they're basically referring to that person as an outsider, Right? That person is unclean. That person is a pagan. That's why when David goes to fight against Goliath, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's not so much a physical description of Goliath as much as it is a derogatory term referring to Goliath as an outsider. And God did desire that the Jews would separate themselves from other peoples so as to not be drawn away to their false religions and practices But the Jews then took that separation to a whole other level by adding all kinds of external rules. And so, for example, Jews would not enter the house of Gentiles. They would not eat with Gentiles. When they exited Gentile territory, they would shake the dust off their sandals and their clothing, lest they contaminate the Holy Land with Gentile particles. They referred to Gentiles as dogs. The animosity was so bad that it was illegal for a Jew to assist a Gentile in childbirth, lest you help them add to their number. If you were a Jew and you were marrying a Gentile, your family would basically perform your funeral, perform your death rites, because you were as good as dead to them. Paul later in verse 14 uses the imagery of the dividing wall to further illustrate the separation. The Jewish temple at Jerusalem first had an innermost court called the court of the priests. Only the Levitical priests were allowed in there. Then concentric to that, outside of that, there was a court called the court of Israel, which could be entered into by any male Jew. After this was the court of women, which any Jew could enter, man or woman. So while there were divisions between priests and non-priests, men and women, notably... These different courtyards are all on the same level. They were separated, but they're all on the same level. The big division came next. The division between Jew and Gentile. You would have to go down five steps from the court of the women to a lower area. And then there was a five foot stone barricade, big wall. Then you go down 14 more steps to get to the court of the Gentiles. They're on completely different levels. And at regular intervals on the wall dividing Jews from Gentiles, there would be signs making it very clear that no Gentile was allowed in under penalty of death. Right? That's the wall that Paul's referring to here in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's not just a physical barrier between Jews and Gentiles, but it's also a symbolic metaphor for the social alienation of the Gentiles, of the separation, of the alienation, of the animosity that existed between the peoples. And in that sense, it's very much like the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall did serve as a literal physical barrier between West Berlin and East Germany, but also as a metaphor 
for the larger divide that existed between the Western powers and their concepts of freedom and democracy and the Soviet powers and their ideal of communism. Similarly, the wall to the court of Gentiles was not just a physical barrier, but also a metaphor for the larger divide that existed between Jews and Gentiles. And you get a sense of how seriously the Jews took this separation of Jew and Gentile when you read the story in Acts chapter 21 of how the Jews wanted to kill Paul because they wrongly suspected him of bringing the Gentile, Trophimus, into this court, past the dividing wall. The text says he even brought Greeks, right? He even brought Gentiles into the temple and has defiled this holy place. It's a serious charge. Yeah, Paul's done all these other things, but you know what he did? He even brought a Gentile past the dividing wall. The hatred, the division, the animosity were that serious. And here's what's really interesting about that story. Because of the riot that resulted from Paul supposedly bringing a Gentile into the Jewish courts, Paul was placed in Roman custody, eventually transported to Rome as a prisoner from where he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And so these problems, right, these harsh divisions are fresh in Paul's mind even as he is penning this very letter. But more important than the Gentiles' social alienation from the Jews was their alienation from God, that is, their spiritual alienation. Verse 12, Paul says, You guys were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. To understand what Paul means by this, we need to understand the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God establishes a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, who will become the Jews, And from that point on, God has a unique relationship with one group of people, the Jews, the nation of Israel. And he reiterates this to them in Exodus chapter 6, when he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And so the entirety of the Old Testament, and there are exceptions here and there. Obadiah preaches to Edom, Jonah preaches to Nineveh. There are characters and stories and examples here and there. But basically, most of the Old Testament is about one nation, the nation of Israel. God, through his direct workings and his speaking through his prophets, mostly deals only with the Jews. They are his special covenant people who receive his special covenant blessings. God's hand of protection, God's provision, God's prophets, God's law. They're for the Jews. On the other hand, Gentiles did not have access to this. Gentiles were not given the law, the law that revealed God's holy character. Gentiles were not given the prophets, the prophets that spoke God's words of promise, rebuke, and correction. The Gentiles were not given God's hand of protection in the sense that God never parted the Red Sea for the Gentiles. God never made the walls of Jericho fall down for the Gentiles. God doesn't kill 185,000 invading soldiers for any Gentile peoples. So the Gentiles were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And because of that, before Christ, they were not partakers of this covenant. Let me illustrate this with the story of Ruth. You guys know the famous line from that book where Ruth says, Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Right? That's Ruth. She's a Gentile. She's a Moabite speaking to Naomi, her Jewish mother-in-law. I want your God, Yahweh, I want your God, the God of Israel, to be my God. But look at the order of how she says it. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. That is, before Yahweh can be my God, your people, the Jews, have to be my people. Basically, I, a Moabite, a Gentile, need to first become a Jew, change my nationality, 
Your people shall be my people, and then your God shall be my God. So before Christ, the God of Israel was exactly that. He was the God of the Israelite people, the God of the Jews, and pretty much the Jews alone. The Gentiles were not partakers of any covenants or promises or blessings from God. And so because they are not partakers of this covenant, they are not inheritors, Paul says, of this promised blessing. Paul says Gentiles are without hope and without God in this world. They are strangers to God and strangers to his covenants of promise. And so they don't know the God of Israel. He hasn't revealed himself to the Gentiles. Jesus says exactly that to the woman at the well, who is a Samaritan Gentile. You, Gentiles, you worship what you do not know. We, the Jews... Worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Let me illustrate this with an interesting story you'll find in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. I think this really clearly illustrates the problem that the Gentiles had in terms of spiritual alienation. Look at verses 22 and 23. They're very curious. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let's think about that. These religious people, they know that there is a God. Romans 1 says so. It's plain from creation that there is a creator. Then Romans 2 says that our consciences testify to the existence of a law, which of course testifies to the existence of a lawgiver, namely God. But these religious Gentiles, though they know that there is some unknown God, they don't know who he is. But then here's the question. If they don't know who he is, why in the world would they build an altar to him? Well, if, as Romans 2 says, our consciences testify against us that we've broken this law written on our hearts, and if, as Romans 1 says, we and everything in this world were created by this God, then this God is both our lawgiver and our creator, and so this God also has the right to be our judge. And since this God is holy, and we, as our consciences will testify, as our actions and personal experiences will testify, we are not holy, we're in big trouble. But we fracture this relationship with our creator and our lawgiver, and since he's also our judge, that's bad news. Our relationship with our God is destroyed, it's alienated by our sin. And so we're in need of reconciliation. And that's precisely what the Greeks were trying to accomplish with this altar to the unknown God. We know we're in trouble. We know we need some kind of reconciliation. But we don't know who we need to be reconciled to. But what we do know is that we need it. And so we're going to build this altar. But it's not just the Gentiles that need this reconciliation to God. All people, including the Jews, need reconciliation to God. Because the Jews were given the law, but they didn't keep it. The Jews were given the prophets, but they didn't listen. The Jews were given special blessings and privileges, but they, just like the Gentiles, estranged themselves from God through their sin. This is no surprise, because Jews and Gentiles both trace their lineage back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, our ancestors Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship with God, with no alienation at all, but then they sinned, and in response, God cast them out of the Garden. That is, 
Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, severed their relationship with God, caused alienation with God through their sin. And so we not only get a sin nature from our original parents, but we also inherit that separation, that alienation between us and our creator. Because of that sin, because we are alienated from our God, if we die in that state, we are cast off into an eternity in hell, which is the ultimate alienation. Second Thessalonians 1 describes hell as a place where unbelievers will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Basically, hell is a place where we are eternally alienated and separated from the goodness and glory of God and we experience only the judgment and wrath of God. And so we all, Jews and Gentiles, we all, every single one of us, are without hope and without God in this world because of the alienation caused by our sin. We all need reconciliation more than anything in the world. We need reconciliation with our God. And so it's very clear from Scripture that reconciliation is needed. That's the bad news. Now Paul tells us how reconciliation was accomplished. This is the second of our points. Reconciliation accomplished. This is the good news. And Paul does this twice in this chapter. First he paints the bleak picture, then he introduces the glorious gospel as the solution to that problem. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, bad news, how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4 begins with, but God, and then Paul proclaims the glories of the gospel. Well, same thing here, verses 11 and 12, bad news, right, about how we need reconciliation really badly, not only with other people, but most importantly with the unknown God himself. Then verse 13 starts with, but now, right, now contrast that with verse 11, where Paul says, at one time, as in before you were in this bad state needing reconciliation with God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's that wonderful contrast. At one time you were alienated, now you've been reconciled. Let me start with the spiritual reconciliation that comes in Christ, and then I'll address the social reconciliation. Spiritual reconciliation, look at verses 15 and 16. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And so the imagery that Paul uses here is that Christ took two types of men, Jews and Gentiles, and created in himself one new man. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the clearest chapters in the Bible about this concept of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The logic is the same here. Christ died for you. You are a new creation in Christ. So at that point, whatever your old creation was, Jew or Gentile, it really doesn't matter because you are a new creation in Christ. But how does Jesus accomplish that reconciliation? How does Jesus accomplish that new creation in us? Look at verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how does God accomplish reconciliation? By making Jesus Christ who knew no sin, that is he never committed a sin, to be sin. We talked earlier about how the alienation between God and man was due to man's sin. And so something had to be done about 
man's sin in order for there to be reconciliation to God. Well, what did Jesus do? He became man, and then as man, he became sin, right? Our sin. That is, God took all of our sin, all the sins we've ever committed, all the sins that have alienated us from our God, and he put them on Jesus and thus made him sin. And on the cross, Jesus dies for that sin. He suffers the punishment for that sin. God the Father pours out his wrath on Jesus for that sin. That sin that had separated and alienated man from God was symbolized by that thick curtain in the temple. And that curtain was the one that when Jesus died was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing the removal of that alienation and of that separation for those in Christ. Right? We've been reconciled to God. We've been reconciled to God because Jesus died for us. Romans 5.10 While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. But it's not just that He died for our sin. Look at the last part of that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21 In Him we became the righteousness of God. That is, Jesus lived a perfect life and on the cross when He took upon Himself our sin, He gave us in exchange His perfect righteousness. So that on the cross... He became sin and we became the righteousness of God. And so when God looks at us when we die, he does not see alienation causing separation inducing trespasses. He sees perfect righteousness and says, welcome into my presence. Spiritual reconciliation was accomplished by Christ's death on the cross. But it's not just the spiritual reconciliation between God and man that Christ accomplishes. It's also social reconciliation. Not just between Jews and Gentiles, but all kinds of social reconciliation. Look at verse 14. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's that metaphor we talked about earlier, that wall in the temple. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. How did Jesus accomplish this social reconciliation? Reconciling the seemingly irreconcilable enemies that were the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, Jesus Christ fulfilled in his perfect keeping of the Old Testament law the regulations and the commandments that set Israel apart from its neighbors. What Paul calls the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And so, for example, Christ kept all of the laws regarding food in Leviticus chapter 11. So that now both Jews and Gentiles that trust in Jesus don't have to keep those laws. Remember the story in Acts chapter 10? Peter has that vision and then he visits with Cornelius. We remember the dream that Peter has, right? He's got a great blanket coming down from the sky. He's got all kinds of animals that the Israelites would have considered to be unclean. And what does God tell him? Rise, kill, and eat. All those things are clean to eat. But what is the conclusion that Peter draws from this? It's not just, oh great, I no longer have all these dietary restrictions. I can eat whatever I want. No, it's in verse 28. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, right? That's that animosity, that's that alienation, that's that hostility and division that previously existed. But here we go. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. 
Because the ceremonial laws regarding food were fulfilled in Christ, and thus Peter and the Jews no longer had to keep them, right? Rise, kill, and eat. The natural and logical conclusion of the matter was that there is nothing then making the Gentiles unclean. So therefore, there is no reason why he or any other Jew could not visit with the Gentiles. There's no contamination. There's no defiling. There's no restriction. Once what made them different had been fulfilled in Christ, they were no longer different. And there was no more justification for any social alienation. Oftentimes we think of Christ fulfilling the law on our behalf, and we think of what he did not do. Right? Christ never murdered anybody. Christ never spoke badly of anybody. Christ never lusted. Christ never stole. Christ never lied. We, all, we think about the things that he did not do. And because of all the things that he did not do, we have those things imputed to us, right? We did not do any of those things because we received the perfect righteousness of Christ. Praise God. But let us also remember how important it is, all the things that Christ did do. That he kept every ceremonial food law. That he ate only clean foods. That he kept every Jewish feast and ordinance that was commanded in the Old Testament. These are the things that Christ did, verse 14, in his flesh. And by doing these things, by fulfilling these laws for us, he broke down the barrier between Jew and Gentile. Right? He made possible social reconciliation and peace between Jew and Gentile. Verse 14, he himself is our peace. Social reconciliation was accomplished by Jesus Christ. He has torn down that wall, that symbolic wall of division and hostility. And just so we're clear, social reconciliation is really just an aspect of spiritual reconciliation. It's because both Jews and Gentiles are reconciled spiritually to the same God, they can be reconciled to one another. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.17, He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Well, since we're all saved by the same Lord... If we're all one spirit with him, by syllogism, we're all one spirit with each other as well. Right? If you and I have the same mother and the same father, that makes us brothers. Well, if you and I have the same savior and we're both one spirit with him, we must be brothers in Christ. We must be in one spirit with each other. Because to have Christ in common is a greater bond than any country, any nationality, any interest, any language, anything because all of those things are temporal. They will all disappear. Whereas your bond in Christ is eternal. One fold, one shepherd. Right? Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. When you're in heaven worshiping your creator, you're not going to care what city someone is from or what baseball team they like. And I know we're supposed to keep the things we talk about in our discipleship groups confidential. But I'm going to talk about one particular sin that, that has been really rampant in my D group, which is that I believe that besides me and my wife, everybody in my D group is a Yankee fan. <laughs> now, I will, I will pray for them, but I love them nonetheless. Even though we have this great earthly division, we have a bond in Christ that is much, much stronger than that. Because when we are in heaven, we're not going to care about any of that stuff because we're all going to be doing the same thing. We're going to be worshiping the same God through the same mediatory work of Jesus Christ that overcomes all barriers, that overcomes all differences, that overcomes all alienation and all hostility. 
social reconciliation is accomplished by the death of Christ. And so Paul says in Colossians 3.11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. There's none of that because Christ is all and in all. Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I hope you see just how much ink the Apostle Paul spends on this one subject. It is very important to understand that Christ's death accomplishes not just spiritual reconciliation, but also social reconciliation for his people. Unity within the body. Now let's look at how that reconciliation, right, that, that beautiful reconciliation of sinner to God through the gospel, how is that applied Paul paints the picture in several ways through several analogies. We've got the kingdom, the household, and the temple at the end of chapter 2. Let me zero in on the first two. First, the kingdom. Paul says that because of that reconciliation, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Because we have been reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ... Through him we have access. Access perhaps is not the best word to describe what's going on here because access in English implies a potential relationship. Right? If I have a backstage pass to a music concert, right? I, I might well I have access. I might get to meet the band, but I might not. I might get nervous, I might get scared, I might miss an opportunity, they might leave. And so the word for access is not so much related to potential, but it's related to a word that describes a court official who makes introductions, right? introduces visitors to the king. And so these people not only give access, not only give the potential to meet the king, but they also make the introduction. They guarantee the relationship. Through the gospel, we are similarly introduced into a relationship with the king. It's much more than potential. right? It's an actual introduction to a relationship. Christ's death does not just give us the potential to be saved or potentially we might enter into a relationship with God. Christ's death secures for us this close relationship. He, in effect, is making the introductions. He secures us eternal favor. Romans 5.2 Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And what a beautiful picture that through Christ we have access to the throne room of God through the intercessory work of Jesus. But then Paul ups the ante. And he makes the analogy of a household. He says we are members of the household of God. It is one thing to be a citizen. It's another to be a member of a household. Right? I'm a citizen of the United States and I love the United States, but I am a member of the Fujiwara family. And my love for my family is far more intense and personal than my love for my country. Think about this. Because we've been reconciled with God through Christ, we are members of the household of God. Right? As a Christian... As a blood-bought sinner, overflowing with thankfulness towards Jesus and a desire to be with God, we hear about this household and we think exactly what the psalmist in Psalm 84 thinks, even as Rocky read earlier today. He beautifully describes how lovely the dwelling place of the Lord is and how his soul longs and faints to be in the courts of the Lord. And then he says this in verse 10, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It would be enough for us to be doorkeepers in the household of God, a lowly servant in the household of God. But God says, no, you are my child. You do not have to be a doorkeeper. You can be a member of the household of God. Welcome in my child. We are members of the household of God as children, as adopted sons and daughters. Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might be members of the household. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. There's that picture again of the access we have now to God because we've been adopted into the family through the gospel. That's reconciliation because of what Jesus Christ did. We've been reconciled through the gospel, not just so that we no longer have any punishment to fear, but we've been reconciled to the point where we are members of the household. We are sons and daughters of God. Amen? Reconciliation applied. Let me close with two application points based on this text. First of all, we need to be a people that practice unity. Practical unity. Let me make a distinction between positional unity and what I'll call practical unity. If you're sitting here today and you confess to submitting yourself to the word of God, then you have no choice but to acknowledge that all believers are the same in Christ. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, black and white, young and old, Dominican and Japanese, teacher and student, high school student and retiree. There is no distinction because in Christ all are a new creation in him. Now all that theology we're going to call positional unity because it's theological, theoretical unity based on our positional sanctification. That is based on the fact that we're all saved unto the same spiritual position because of the gospel we are united. But then there's the practical outworking of that, which I'll call practical unity. It's entirely possible for two people to both be Christians, that is to be positionally united, but far from practically united. Bigger picture in our country, this takes form, this takes the form of segregated churches. Martin Luther King Jr. is attributed with a quote that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of Christian America. We see this as we walk through our neighborhoods and we see churches for this group and churches for that group and so on and so forth. Nine out of ten congregations in the U.S. are segregated in which a single racial group accounts for more than 80% of the church. Now that's not a problem here at North Shore, praise be to God. But that does not get us off the hook. That does not mean that the issue of practical unity is not an issue here. It's entirely possible for you, for me, to go to the same church as someone, be fellow members, but because they're different, we don't talk to them, we don't greet them, we don't sit next to them, you don't consider them to be in your circle, you don't fellowship with them. And so a question we can ask ourselves is, how does practical unity look in our lives? Are there certain believers that we just won't talk to because of what they look like, or where they live, or what their interests are, or what their interests aren't? Or because of how old they are, 
that we show favoritism to certain people because we have more earthly qualities or characteristics in common with them than with others. I don't necessarily have a chapter and verse for this, but I think it's a good question we can ask ourselves. Do we count among our closest friends people with whom we have nothing in common except Christ? Because anybody, even unbelieving, even unbelievers, even the outside world, they can be friends with people with whom you have a lot in common. Right? It's easy to be friends with someone who's of the same background, same, same favorite sports team, same hobbies, same interests, same job. It's easy to be friends with those people. But who in your circle do you have nothing in common with except for the blood of Jesus Christ? Right? And it encourages my heart so much every time I hear about Brother Vinny Nizzo taking Luke Amorelli out for breakfast. I don't know how often they do it, but I know they do it with some regularity. Now consider, those of you who know them, consider Vinny and Luke. Right, Vinny's been married for 40 plus years. Right, Vinny does push-ups, and Vinny writes poems. Right, Push-ups and poems, that's Vinny. Luke is 21 years old, he's a great drummer, and he wears skinny jeans. They've got nothing in common. They've got nothing in common from a worldly perspective, except they have everything in common, because they've been both saved by the same gospel. It does not matter how little earthly qualities they have in common because positionally, Vinny and Luke have been saved by the same Lord Jesus Christ. And so they've got everything in common. They're united in Christ, both positionally and practically, right? That's what unity looks like. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are the walls that we have constructed in our hearts that hinder true unity within the body of Christ? What are these dividing walls of hostility that still exist in my mind, although they don't exist in actuality because Christ has torn down every wall, they still exist in our minds that prevents me from truly loving the church? For many years, even after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the reunification of Germany, Germans talked about cultural differences between East and West Germans. And there's a term used to describe the division, Mara im Kopf, which means the wall in the head. Right? There is no more Berlin Wall, but there is a wall in my head. Basically, even though the physical wall was deconstructed, for many years there was still a wall in many people's heads and in their hearts that reinforced divisions. In the same way, even though all walls of hostility have been taken down by the gospel, for some of us there are still these walls in our head. And there's nothing that will destroy or deconstruct those walls in our heart and our head besides a true understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel says that Christ died for that person, Christ died for you, even though you have nothing in common, you've both been made into one new man through Christ. And so our positional unity with our brothers and sisters has to be reflected in a practical unity with them, within the church. We need to be a church that reflects the relationship of reconciliation we have with our God through the relationships we have with our brothers and sisters within the church. That is our testimony to the outside world. Second and finally, we need to be a people that reflects on reconciliation. Reconciliation is the core of the Christian faith. It's the principal message of the gospel. It says that we through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, have had our relationship to God, which was nothing but enmity because of our sin, restored to a relationship of peace. That is what Christianity is all about. Right? That we who were enemies of God, 
now, as Paul says, have access to the Father. We can be friends with everybody in the church, right, of every age and every color and just have great relationships with everybody. But if we miss this, we have missed the entire point. The gospel is about Jesus reconciling us to God. And so what is the application? The application is to meditate on that, right? It's to rejoice in that. It's to exult in that. It's to let that be your pride and your boast and your song that Jesus took sinners like us, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. And he reconciled us through his death, through his resurrection to a holy God. And he made us children of God. Now, one way we can reflect on this reconciliation is by doing exactly what Paul tells the Ephesians to do. Look at verse 11 and 12. Remember, he says to them. Twice he tells them, remember. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in this world. Remember, that applies to every single one of us. Remember that at one time we were alienated from our God in desperate need of reconciliation, but with a complete lack of desire for it. But then we were reconciled by the blood of Christ. We need to remember that. We need to remember who we once were, remember what we were saved from, and remember that God, because of his great love for us, saved us with this glorious gospel. The word reconcile in Greek signifies a turning from hostility to friendship. That's exactly what God has accomplished in both reconciliations, right? Social, Jew to Gentile, as the former enemies are now brothers in Christ. More importantly, and this is the central message of the Bible, man to God, right? As the former enemies are now father and adopted son through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be a people that reflects on that. Reflect on reconciliation. Your mind can hold no loftier or higher thought. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for reconciliation. We thank you that your son, Jesus Christ, came and died for our sins and in exchange gave us his perfect righteousness that we might be reconciled to you, though we deserved none of it. Yet you loved us so much that you reconciled us to the point where we are now in your household. We are children of God. Lord, we praise you for the gospel. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here who still need reconciliation, who are still estranged and alienated from their God because of their sin, I pray that even today you would save them through that gospel. In Jesus' name, to his glory, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.